You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Uh, Before you sit, uh, we do have redemptional kids today, which means we've got a question and answer. Right now, the kids are, uh, our kids specifically five to nine, We'll be learning a lot about the Holy Spirit in the coming weeks. So here's the question for today. I'll read it and then with me with the answer. How does the Holy Spirit help us? He is the spirit of the new covenant, enlivening and empowering all the elect to know the Lord, to bear his fruits, and to serve one another in the church for mutual edification. He blows where he wishes, both enlivening the elect through the proclamation of the gospel and empowering them for service according to the sovereign purposes of the triune God. Great. You may be seated. Uh, parents, if it serves you, we have redemptional kids, ages two to four, and then five to nine. Thank you for those who are serving today in Redemption Hill Kids. Thanks for serving parents and our kids. It is uh, not unusual, at least for me, uh, to run into Christians who say they've never been through an Advent sermon series. Of course, you have your, you know, your Christmas Eve service, your Christmas Day service, but I've run into a lot of people. It's like, oh, you do that? You actually spend several weeks leading up to Christmas, and yes, we do. Um, I don't know all the reasons why some churches do not have a sermon series on Advent. I'm not saying they're unbiblical or anything like that. Uh, But I want to make a case why it's beneficial to spend several weeks with a hyper-focus on the birth of Jesus Christ. First, church history is filled with churches and denominations who who follow something we call like a a church calendar. It's foreign to a lot of us in 
our evangelical circles. We don't quite understand. I grew up Catholic, so they actually follow a different kind of church calendar, but in Protestant worlds, they have that as well. The Christian calendar highlights some of the most significant events of the Christian faith. And so, of course, on this Christian calendar, we have days leading up to Christmas and then days leading up to Easter, right? We got Lent and Advent, and filled in between these two most significant events, most significant days that we celebrate as Christians, are other events that are highlighted. And I think that's important. I find it disappointing we've abandoned some of these historical roots as Christians. We've kind, of dis- we've kind of pulled the plug, and we're like, we're doing our own thing. And I find that to be kind of haughty and arrogant, honestly. Second, in my opinion, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is undervalued. Let me explain what I mean. Yes, for several weeks... We will sing Christmas songs, as we did last week and as we did this morning, right? We get to sing. You have traditions to celebrate. You have traditions. I have traditions. Our family has traditions. You might have a manger scene at home. Uh, The day after Thanksgiving, this last Thanksgiving, the Powers family went out, as we do every single year. We find a tree. I cut it down. I drag it, and everyone watches me. But are we thinking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ as we go about our traditions? Do we think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ in July? Right? When it's hot and it's sunny. Are we thinking about the implications of God taking on flesh in the heat of summer? Yes, we rightly focus on justification and salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ from January to Thanksgiving. But sometimes the incarnation seems to be a side gig reserved for Christmas. We'll get to that. We'll talk about that at Christmas. But here's the deal, and I want you to allow this truth to sink in as we go through this Advent sermon series. There is no justification and salvation without the incarnation. Get that? There is no justification and salvation without the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The miracle of a virgin birth must take place to be forgiven of your sins. We should be talking about the birth of Jesus Christ all year round. We must constantly connect the incarnation with the rest of the work of Christ. Too often we, we, we think in boxes, we think about our Christian theology, right? We got the incarnation here, that's one box we talk about at Christmas. We got um, the crucifixion here, it's another box. But of course, we got that with the resurrection, it's another box. No, they're all connected. During this Advent season, and as you hear me preach about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, do not forget what the incarnation is leading us to, right? And so that's my my opening salvo. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into today's text. Heavenly Father, I need your help this morning. I'm indeed a, a needy beggar. Help me to be faithful to what you've already spoken. I, I pray for these precious folks who are in front of me. And I trust that in the power of the Spirit, you are at work in their mind, in their heart, 
as your word is preached. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled this sermon series, The Awe and Wonder of Christmas. And it is the awe and wonder of the birth of Christ and all the events surrounding the birth of Christ that I want us to marvel at for the next several weeks. I think, I think people instinctively uh, want to be in awe of something, right? Instinctively. It doesn't always work out that way, especially with technology, where you can look up anything in a moment. But I think instinctively, we, we want a sense of awe and wonder in our lives. I remember the first time I saw the Rocky Mountains. I was in third grade. My parents ran into some money. Someone died. They inherited it. And so we took a trip from Dubuque, and we went through the whole state of Iowa. And you know what's after Iowa? You got the whole state of Nebraska. And you're just, you know, corn, corn, soy, soy. But then you get to the Nebraska-Colorado border, and you begin to see white tips of the mountain or sometime thereafter, right? And it just gets closer, and you get closer, and you get closer to the Rockies, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa! This is amazing. This is amazing. And since I was a child, I've been fascinated with hurricanes and tornadoes. Weird, weird, I know, I get it. Like, I was on the Weather Channel all the time. One of my favorite stations. My kids know this. I, if there's a, like a tornado siren going off, like I'm looking for the tornado. Like last time it happened when we were living in Adel, I'm like, I said, kids, who's coming with me? <laughs> one of them came. One of them's like, I'm going inside. The reason why I, I'm in awe of tornadoes and hurricanes, it's not the damage. That's horrible, right? But it's the power that is created by a Cat 5 hurricane. I'm just like, that is amazing that nature can do that. And what about looking at the stars on a summer night when there's not a cloud in the sky, right? Let's say there's no light pollution. You're out in the country, you look up and just marvel. Just marvel. Now, here's the question. Are you left in awe and wonder over what you see? Which is, which is good, but are you in more, uh, are you have more wonder over the one who created the Rocky Mountains? Are you in awe over the one who is sovereign over the hurricane? Are you in awe over the one who put every star in place? He put Mars in place, he put Jupiter in place, and he is the one who put Saturn in place. Are you in awe that the baby born of the Virgin Mary did all this? Like when you pause for a moment and you just kind of ponder what I'm suggesting, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. So for the next several weeks, one of my goals as we go through portions of Luke 1 and 2 is to recapture a sense of awe and wonder. Yes, I said we instinctively have that, but also we know our sense of awe and wonder can become dim, right? Even with the busyness of the holidays, the busyness of life, sometimes we have to remind ourselves 
of the grandeur of God. Advent is a time of rejoicing. Advent is a time to praise God for the birth of Christ. Advent is a time to ponder the miraculous. Not run away from the the miraculous, but ponder, run right into it and be like, how did this happen? And I hope as we put a spotlight on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you will be in awe. Not only by how Jesus was conceived, but why he was born at all. If I had to put a warning label on this sermon and perhaps the entire sermon series, like those warning labels you now get with um, some movies, right? It would be this. Warning, due to the miraculous, you may need to suspend your rationalistic sensibilities and be prepared to wonder. Here's the first marker of the miraculous in our text, which is really the context for your passage. It comes right before the passage that John read. Before the angel Gabriel visits Mary, he actually visits Mary's cousin Elizabeth. So if you had your Bible open, you kind of backed up a little bit earlier in Luke 1, you'll read that passage. Like Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were old. Elizabeth was older than Zechariah. The biological time to have children had expired for them. They were not going to turn back the clock, and only a miracle was going to give them a a child. And that is precisely what God did for Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were skeptical, skeptical, if you read the passage, standing before the angel Gabriel. But what do we see in that as the context for today's passage? God is faithful. God had a plan for this child, John the Baptist. Here's what the angel says about John. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And we see that in his ministries. We read the Gospels. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Invoking perhaps the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah, right? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Here's the key line here. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It is this last statement that is important for our purposes. The life and ministry of John the Baptist will prepare the world for the life and ministry of Jesus. But first, like Jesus, John needed to be born. John was born first. When he is older, John will begin his ministry before Jesus. But John's entire life bends towards Jesus, who is more significant than him. The story of Elizabeth and Zachariah is more than watching a good trailer before the movie. The story is meant to prepare you for the main story. That's why it's here. That's why it's in this order in the Gospel of Luke. It is intended to, to prepare your heart for something or someone greater. The birth of John the Baptist is a miracle, but a greater miracle will take place. At least with Elizabeth and Zechariah, we understand how the parts work, right? We get that at least, but you would be excused if for a moment you scratched your head at the miraculous conception of Mary. Okay. 
from the visit of Gabriel to Zechariah and Elizabeth to the death of John the Baptist, every moment is meant to point to the son of Mary. So before the interaction between the angel Gabriel and Mary, God was already at work. Uh, here's an example. Five minutes from my house, they're, they're going to put up a massive high V distribution center, Right? But before you can even think about putting the building together, you got to level the ground. you got to create some type of foundation. you got to prepare. The story of Elizabeth and Zechariah is preparation work. And then we read in verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. <laughs> so God's like, Gabriel, got assignment. Go sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed. I think what's betrothed mean? Think kind of like engagement. Not really, but kind of. Betrothed to a man who was born, whose name was Joseph, to the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, I think the appearance of the angel should put us in awe and wonder. Right there, right? I mean, I don't have time to get into the study of angelology, the study of angels, but I do think we don't think enough about the presence of angels in the Bible. Nonetheless, we are supposed to pay close attention when angels appear in the Bible. Why? They share a message from the mouth of God. In fact, the Greek word for angel means messenger. In uh, 1739, the song... Hark the Herald Angels Sing was introduced to the world, right? We'll probably sing that song at some point. The theme of the song is what we see in Luke 1 and 2. An angel is proclaiming a life-changing message of redemption. Therefore, when we read Luke 1, our interest should be piqued and it would be appropriate to have some sense of awe due to the miraculous. Before moving on, I want to encourage you to embrace the miraculous. Embrace it. Go into the deep end on the miraculous. I've quoted this in the past, but I think it's worth repeating. It's from a theologian from the 20th century, uh, J. Gresham Machem. He said this about miracles. This was in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but this certainly applies to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He said this, the conception of the supernatural is closely connected with that of a miracle. A miracle is the supernatural manifesting itself in the external world. And here's a, another thoughtful definition of a miracle. It is an extraordinary or startling observ observable event, so you can actually see it. It cannot reasonably be exclaimed in terms of human abilities or to other known forces in the world. It is perceived as a direct act of God or from God, and it is usually understood to have symbolic or sign value. So you getting that parking spot really close to the door in God's providence is not a miracle. Like God's providence, sure, but not like a miracle. A miracle is extraordinary. It cannot be explained by our human abilities. It happens directly from God. Miracles are dependent upon the character of God. In other words, miracles are not an accident. Because a person cannot explain a miracle, 
does not mean it does not exist. Generally speaking, this explanation of a miracle is not accepted by our culture, right? You'll hear that if your science book can't explain it, then it cannot be true or accurate. If you cannot scientifically explain the conception of Mary, how did she become pregnant? How did that happen? Then it must not be true. That's what we hear from secularism. While I do certainly do not think science and miracles are at odd with one another, it is common for opponents of miracles to leverage science to dismiss miracles, especially the ones we read about in the Bible. Miracles happen precisely because the God who created the world is distinct from his creation, yet he continues to uphold his creation. What might be completely unexplainable to our minds makes complete sense to God. Let's keep this in mind during Advent as we, so that we might be in awe of what God has done. Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah and Elizabeth puts us in awe. It is miraculous. Let's admit it. It is. Gabriel's appearance to Mary should put us in awe. It is miraculous. Let's admit it and embrace it. Perhaps my next observation is not technically a miracle, but it does put me in awe. God picked Mary to birth the mother, to be the mother of the Son of God. To birth and mother the Son of God. Why am I in awe, why am I in awe of that? Mary was a nobody from a nobody, from a nowhere town, right? It'd be like picking a, a teenager from a small village in the middle of Iowa, a small town in the middle of Iowa, right? Outside of that county, no one knows that town exists, right? From a worldly perspective, there's nothing remarkable about Mary or her upbringing. She's probably listening to, I was thinking, like, this, this song popped in my head, Small Town by John Mellencamp, <laughs> Like many people in Israel, she was poor. She was an uneducated peasant living in a small country town far from the center of power, that center of power being Jerusalem. You know, future kings are not supposed to be from no-name towns born in a no-name village. But the humble status of Mary points to and will eventually be exceeded by the humility of Christ. Mary's status in her culture should remind us that God has always been for the lowly, right? He's always been for the lowly. And we see that once again here. God meets with the lowly and the humble. What was David before he was king? The youngest of many brothers and a shepherd in the field. A lowly shepherd. And God says, you're my man. Time to get to work. God choosing Mary is sending a shot across the bow of the proud religious leaders living the good life in the big city of Jerusalem. There were good religious leaders in Jerusalem, for sure. But as we see in all four Gospels, right, there are a lot of problems as well. And it takes a humble woman from a humble town 
to bear and birth the definition of, hum- of humility to change the world. Gabriel says to Mary in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. What a moment to witness. Like in my head, I imagine Mary just trying to process an angel speaking with her. Like, where did you come from? <laughs> I was just washing my clothes or whatever, doing my daily task, and boom, angel. The words from Gabriel are remarkable. The lowly peasant from the rural town is called favored. It says in verse 29 that Mary was troubled, but the sense of that Greek word is actually perplexed and rightfully so. We all would be perplexed if we were in Mary's position, right? I would be. And then Gabriel reassures her, do not be afraid, Mary. No, do not be afraid. For you have found favor with God. Now there's that word again. Favored. The Greek word for favored is charis, which is often and most commonly translated as grace. Grace means a person is giving something, given something they do not deserve. Um, Fifteen years ago, the Lord gave me the gift of my wife, Sharice. I do not deserve her. Fifteen years later, I can still say that. Do not deserve it. Do not deserve her. But it was a gift. And I received that gift. Now, let's correct a misconception of this passage. Now, growing up Catholic, I recited the, the prayer called the Hail Mary. Not the football pass, but the prayer. The beginning of the prayer goes like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. I was just talking earlier about how I still remember all those prayers from growing up in the Catholic Church. And it is this passage that is used to justify Mary being the bearer of grace. Catholics say Mary is full of grace and she's the one who gives grace. This is where they go to. I'll tell you what I did not know then, but what I know now. These words are actually an abomination to God. Divine grace is not mediated through Mary. Divine grace is only mediated through Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. Mary is not the mediator of divine grace, but, like many of you, the recipient of divine grace. The recipient. Yes, Mary was treated by God with undeserved kindness. The great reformer Martin Luther corrects the Catholic teaching when he paraphrases Gabriel. Oh, Mary, you are blessed you have a gracious God. That's, this is our response. We have a gracious God. No woman on earth has ever lived, no, no woman ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. That's the sense of what we see here. Mary's historical place is certainly alongside Moses and Abraham and the Apostle Paul, right? Her faith should, should be compared to the faith of Abraham. Like, remember Abraham? God's like, I need you to go to a place you've never been to. No maps, no compass, but you need to go. And Abraham's like, all right. Oh, you're going to take all your family too? Okay. That's what we see here with Mary. As we're going to see in a moment, her response to Gabriel is remarkable and filled with faith. So we can say with certainty, we do not worship Mary. Divine grace cannot come from her, but we can admire how a young woman from the middle of nowhere responded 
we could admire how she responded to extraordinary circumstances. I read one theologian's response, and I'm not sure how I think about it, but I'll just lay it out there for you. He said, Mary might be the first Christian in the New Testament. <laughs> I mean, I, I get the sense of what he's trying to say here. You see how full of faith she is. Now, another takeaway from verses 28 and 30 is that anyone who has been given grace from God should rejoice. As with Mary, God extends grace to undeserving and rebellious sinners. If God has done that to you, you should sing for joy. I mean, next week we'll get to the Magnificat, which is Mary's response. But that is also our response. God has extended grace, and so we rejoice. So we have another reason to be in awe and wonder of God. I am in awe that God would ever extend his saving grace to me, his divine grace. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Mary did not deserve it. But, praise God, we're all recipients of his divine and saving grace. Now let's admit, at least I'll admit, that the angel Gabriel showing up is a big deal. But what is an even bigger deal is what he said to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Okay, I suppose Mary would expect to have a son or daughter with her betrothed husband Joseph at some point in the future, right? But Gabriel is specific. He says she will have a son. Now, from a rational perspective, Gabriel has a 50-50 shot of getting the gender right, but he's very specific. It's going to be a son. And guess what? I'm going to give you the name. At this point, nothing seems too crazy. I mean, angel showing up is a little, you know, whoa, but not too crazy. But Mary knows something's up. She needs Gabriel to connect a few dots for her. She responds, how will this be since I am a virgin? A good question. Uh, that's the right question, is it not? Do Mary and Joseph need to expedite their betrothal or engagement, right? That's probably what I'd be thinking, like, all right, we're getting married like now. <laughs> or is there something else going on here? Is there something else? We'll get to the answer in a moment, which you know. But note how Mary asked the question. Within her question is an assumption that God will do what Gabriel says he will do. She will have a baby boy. This boy's name will be Jesus. She trusts God with her life. Mary's response is meant to be in contrast to actually Zachariah's response. After Gabriel tells Zachariah that he and Elizabeth will have a son, he asks Gabriel, how shall I know this? Like that word know is very important. How am I? I'm old and my wife's advanced in years. In that response, you're like, huh, a little doubt there, right? At this point, I do not think Zechariah understood the miraculous. There seems to be that twinge of doubt. Mary, I don't think, doubts Gabriel at all. She knows God is faithful. She just wants to know the practical matters of her situation. So the angel tells Mary how she will become pregnant. And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
you are not being given the biological response to how Mary became pregnant. If the angel Gabriel does not put you in awe, if God's unmerited favor does not put you in awe, perhaps the answer to Mary's question will put you in awe. God, the Holy Spirit, is going to cause Mary to be pregnant. But again, Pastor Sean, how is that supposed to work? The biology, biology does not make sense. And that is the entire point. It's not supposed to make sense. A way that we are to be in awe and wonder of God is to rejoice in the miraculous. Like, whoa, that's crazy and true. That doesn't, when we think about this, what do the Rocky, how, the Rocky Mountains don't compare to what we read right here. The strength of the hurricane does not compare to what we read right here in terms of being in awe and wonder. Do not compare. The news does not make rational sense, but the question on the table for you and me and at the time for Mary, which I've explained, she has great faith, is do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that God can do this? For the last several months, I've been teaching a class. I think I've told you this before. History and theology to some 7th and 8th graders. One of the issues we had to wrestle with was how to understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It was great. What are we to make of the miraculous conception of Mary? I won't retell all the answers to these questions from class, but I want to tell you why verse 35 is critical to Christian theology. Right? What's that verse again? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary. That's a really important verse. The conception of Mary had to happen this way so that her son could take the path entrusted to him by the Father. Therefore, the Word had to become flesh and live among us. That's John 1.14. Jesus, the Son of God, needed to be fully human except for sin because that is how humanity can be redeemed. What has not been consumed cannot be redeemed. So Jesus took on all of humanity except for sin. That had to happen. Further, Jesus needed to be fully God because only the Son of God could take on the weight of sin. That had to happen. In the second, third, and fourth centuries, a debate was happening about how to understand the person and natures of Jesus Christ. Some people contended that God could only take on the material, the bodies, the Gnostics. Therefore, Jesus could not be fully man. Others believe that the human and divine natures of Christ are mixed together like black and white paint turning into gray paint. Others took a 50-50 approach. It's kind of like partly God, partly man, right? Others still said that the body of Jesus was a rental. Eventually, the Holy Spirit was going to take the rental back to the dealership. Long story short, there needed to be clarification on the debate. And guess what? The debate the debate actually impacts what we know about Jesus this Advent season, in every Advent season, in every day. So long story short again, 325, big council, everyone with great robes, big hats, they get together, Council of Nicaea, they do the Nicene Creed, and they think they got it settled. They didn't. Actually, they need more clarification. And so 56 years later, another statement was written to clarify further and to crystallize what we believe about the Son of Mary. 
This statement is called the Chalcedonian definition. If you're thinking to yourself, I've never heard of that, you probably haven't, and that's okay. But I'm going to introduce it to you today because I got to introduce it to 7th and 8th graders. And this certainly impacts how we understand Jesus Christ. This impacts what we understand about verse 35 in Luke 1. And your brain might hurt after this, and I apologize in advance. Here it is, and I quote. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, so following everything said in the Council of Nicaea in 325, we all unite in teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This same one is perfect in deity, perfect in deity, and the same one is perfect in humanity. This, this, the same one is true God and true man, comprising a, a rational soul and a body. He's of the same essence. You can ignore that italics Greek word. As the Father according to his deity, and the same one is of the same essence with us according to his humanity, like us in all things except sin. Now, I'm not trying to create a theology class. I'm not trying to bring a theology class in the back door of the sermon. But I am trying to highlight something that's that's very significant in how we understand Jesus Christ and how it all took place. The miraculous conception of Mary needed to happen. When it comes to the redemption of man and the the restoration and renewal of the entire world, the Word needed to become flesh. The Son of Mary needed to be fully God and fully man. There was no plan B. There was no alternative to save you from your sin and from hell. No alternative. We celebrate the miraculous conception of Mary because of what we read in Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. We've, we've bumped into that already, right, in Luke for he will save his people from their sins. In Luke 1, Gabriel tells us more about the one born to Mary. He says, Therefore the child to be born is to be called holy, the Son of God. At this point, there should be no doubt about the importance of the child being born to Mary. Gabriel says that Jesus is the Son of God. So, miracles matter. Miracles must matter to our Christian faith. So I've pointed out how the miraculous, which confirms the importance of Mary's son, right? But there is also a temporal clues that tell us the importance of this child. The child, through the earthly, through his earthly father, not his biological father, but his earthly father will be in the line of David, right? That's verse 27. That point's repeated in verse 32. And then Gabriel tells Mary that her son will reign over the house of Jacob. These historical facts are part of a pool of other facts that lead us toward the birth of Christ. I mean, we're going to see more facts here in the future, but we can continue to be in awe about how God has weaved into history a breadcrumb trail that leads us right to this conversation between Gabriel and Mary. Our passage ends with these words, which highlight the faith of Mary. Take a look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, John the Baptist. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible 
with God. Such great assurance right there, right? And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So when Gabriel visits Mary, John is already born. We, don't, we do, not, do not know how much Mary knew about Elizabeth's pregnancy, but I would expect Mary would have been shocked, right? It's not like they were sending emails back and forth. What trimester are you in? None of that. No text message exchanges. I'm sure she was shocked. After Gabriel assures Mary that nothing is impossible for God, Mary just shows her cards. She is a servant of the Lord, verse 38. At no point does Mary question the angel. She states the opposite. She wants to serve God. Whatever you say, I'm in. Whatever you say, I'm good. Whatever's coming out of your mouth next, I'm good. I'm in. So don't move too quickly past Mary's response here. A lot was on the line for her. She was engaged to Joseph, betrothed, right? And being pregnant during her engagement is not a good look. Mary was jeopardizing her relationship with Joseph. And as we see in the Gospels, Joseph struggles with this. And God meets him. But at this time, this relationship is jeopardized. She's also jeopardizing a secure future, right? Joseph is going to take care of her. She was also jeopardizing her reputation in her small town of Nazareth. Word will travel fast once someone figures out Mary is pregnant. One commentator asks, How did she do it? How did she do it? How was she able to offer such costly service? The answer is that Mary did it by faith. She trusted God for all of it, her relationship with Joseph, her reputation in town, her physical suffering, and the anguish of her soul. Many believed in God and followed him with trusting, or Mary believed in God and followed him with trusting obedience. Perhaps there's something we, we right now can learn from Mary, right? What would it mean for you to trust God when all of the facts don't line up, Right? Some of you moved to Iowa, and it was an act of faith to move here for this church. And, and I know your friends were like, this doesn't make any sense. He's like, I know. And he came. What would, it, what would it mean to pray for greater faith, to be obedient to God? Mary is not Jesus, yes, but she models a humble and faithful obedience to God. We should receive her example and even be in awe and wonder of how she even fully submitted to God in this moment. Knowing that everything ahead of her, everything in her life was put in jeopardy. I love Advent. I love traditions connected to Advent and Christmas Day. Sharice uh, was reading Christmas books to the kids last night. I just love watching that. Right, I love it. I love gathering together with family and friends. 
I love gathering with this church to celebrate the birth of Christ and to talk about it and to rejoice. And between now and Christmas Day, allow your traditions, allow your meals and gatherings of family and friends to rightly align your heart and mind toward the holy conception of Mary and the birth of Christ. May everything you do this Advent season be geared toward that. Just as everything that happened to, to, to John the Baptist, everything was pointed toward Jesus. That needs to be us. And yes, have fun, right? Smile, gather, do all those things. But let's be in awe and wonder. Let's step back, let's just step back and be in awe and wonder of how Mary was conceived and why Jesus was born. Let's be in awe and wonder of that. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.